One of my favorite scenes in film comes from one of my favorite books, and at the end of the first Lord of the Rings movie, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, if you're unfamiliar with Lord of the Rings, uh, shame on you. The time to repent is now. So first application, go home, you know, read the books, watch the movies, they're awesome. Uh, but, but in The Fellowship of the Ring, towards the end of the movie, the main character, Frodo, who is carrying the ring, which is all kinds of evil, if you're not familiar, uh, he wants to go to Morador to destroy the ring by himself. And, and to this point, he's been accompanied by an entourage of dwarves and elves. And for those of you that don't know the story, you're like, what? Yeah, dwarves and elves have gone with him uh, and some other friends. And he is he's taking this ring. He says, I'm going to go by myself to Morador. Because he can't come to grips with the idea of leading his friends into untold horrors and most likely their deaths. And so he sneaks away from the rest of the group and he slips into a boat and starts making his way across a river. But his close friend, Sam, realizes what's going on. And so Sam runs to the shore just as Frodo's getting out into the water, and he yells like he does, I think, a million times in the movie. He's like, Frodo! Frodo! There's some sappy music that plays. And Frodo's like, I'm not even looking back at you. I'm, I'm going. I'm gone. But Sam persists. He's, you hear him splashing into the water, and he's sinking deeper into it. It's coming up to his waist. Frodo! And finally, Frodo turns around, and he says, I'm going to Mordor alone. Sam keeps walking forward and he says, of course you are, and I'm coming with you. (laughs) Frodo informs Sam that he cannot swim, but that doesn't stop him. He keeps walking forward to Frodo until eventually he sinks beneath the surface of the water. There's this really dramatic thing, like you you see him under the water and you're like, is he going to die? Like Frodo's going to let him die? And then like at the last second, his hand reaches down and plucks him out of the water and into the boat. And he's covered in water. And he says, Sam says to Frodo, I made a promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. I made a promise and I intend to keep it. And his point, if I can paraphrase him, is where you go, I go. And and that brings us to the heartbeat of Acts chapter 8. It's not necessarily where you go, I go, but where the church goes, Jesus goes. The people of Christ take Christ with them everywhere they go. I'm going to exhort you this morning to gossip the gospel. Now, admittedly, in Acts chapter 8, there are kind of two stories going on at the same place. There's this big overarching story, and there's kind of this um, very specific story of Simon. We know him as Simon the Magician. And we're going to talk about him next week, up through verse 25. But, but this week, we want to focus on the gospel going to the Samaritans. It's leaving Jerusalem, and it's starting to fulfill that pronouncement that Jesus made back in verse 8 of chapter 1. That his people would be his witnesses in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So let's pray, and then we will get started. 
God, we thank you that your word is more than capable of doing your work. And pray that it would do its work in us this morning. That we wouldn't just be people that come and sing and preach and listen and pray, but that we would be people who meet with you. God, you are the goal of all that we are doing. Give us an intense experience of personal reality with you this morning. You are the one we seek. Help us to draw near to you in this time that we might enjoy the pleasures that are at your right hand forevermore. Give us ears to hear and shape our hearts by your Holy Spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So book of Acts to this point, you guys are probably getting tired of this line, but the whole book of Acts we've summarized is Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. In chapter 1, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God and how it's breaking into earth right now. He tells his disciples that wonderful verse, it's kind of a mini great commission, he says, you're going to bear witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends into heaven where he sits on his throne to rule and to reign. There's some imagery there from Daniel that shows that Jesus is the Messiah once more in case him resurrecting from the dead wasn't enough. Right? And so he sits on the throne and then his disciples wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes and the disciples begin declaring the wonderful works of God. Some people are like, hey, are they drunk? And Peter's like, no, that's not what's going on at all. He explains to them that God has poured out his spirit, that this Jesus is the one who was to come. He's the king that sits on David's throne forever. And that indeed God is doing something new. And then many believe and are baptized into the church we see miracles being performed. We see adversity being encountered. And time and time again, even though the church seems to face adversity, the word still prevails. God's church continues to grow. And we've seen that all the way up until last week when we encountered Stephen. There's been opposition in terms of throwing people in prison and going before the Sanhedrin and some heated verbal altercations. But last week it escalated. Stephen was taken before the Sanhedrin. He proclaimed that the end of the temple, the end of the law was Christ, that these were signposts meant to show the people that God now meets them in the person and work of Jesus Christ not in a temple made by hands. That Jesus is the righteous one who fulfilled the law that they could never keep. And that it would be through him alone they could be made righteous. And in response, the Jewish people, the people of Jerusalem, stoned Stephen to death as he committed his spirit into the Lord's hand and prayed for his enemies. That's the 
um, stage onto which we step this morning in verse 1 of chapter 8. Saul agreed with putting him, that's Stephen, to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. It's no longer safe for Christians in Jerusalem. The church is scattered and scared. Most of us cannot even imagine what it would be like to find ourselves underneath persecution like this. It's unimaginable for us here in the West, but it is a reality for our brothers and sisters across the globe. In the last 20 years, more than 2 million Christians have been killed for their faith. More Christian martyrs, there have been more Christian martyrs in the last 150 years than in the previous 1,800 years combined. Our brothers and sisters across the globe read passages like this and they relate a lot better than you and I do. They know what it is to bleed for the gospel. They know what it means to take up a cross and follow Jesus. And too often we are too attached to our comfort to see that it really does cost something to trust Christ. Indeed, Jesus calls us to die. He calls us to die to ourselves so that we might live to Him. And that's what we, we see the people in Acts have made this commitment The doors of their homes are being knocked on. They're being interrogated. What would you do? If when folding your laundry, making dinner, putting your kids to sleep, the looming possibility of hearing that knock. Any Christians in here? Our society cannot tolerate this kind of religious divergence. It's been reported to us that you follow Christ. What would you say? If we are to follow Christ and really follow Him, if you're really in relationship with Jesus, if He really is your treasure, the answer must be yes. It shouldn't be your desire. Nobody, nobody sets out to be martyred. But it should be our desire to set out to be like Jesus. Set out to be like Stephen. Who faced the worst of persecution in order to honor Christ. Are you ready to endure whatever God calls you to? You've not been promised comfort. Persecution may come. And indeed, this is the kind of persecution that the believers in Jerusalem were facing. 
And we read verse 4. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Persecution does not deter these Christians from telling others about Jesus. And I want you to notice in verse 1 of chapter 8, we read, all except the apostles were scattered. And so these are not professional Christians that are preaching the gospel outside of Jerusalem, okay? The all there doesn't mean every believer except aside from the apostles. It means most or the majority of. In the same way, if you go to a party and somebody's like, hey, who was there? And you're like, oh man, everybody was there, right? Kind of a figurative language. A large majority of Christians are scattered outside of Jerusalem's walls and they go about proclaiming the gospel. The persecution doesn't cause them to go, well, I guess we were persecuted and this whole Jesus thing really isn't worth it. I would like to live inside the walls of Jerusalem. I would like to be safe. That's not what they say. They say, my insecurity is nothing in comparison to Jesus. Me being displaced from my home is not enough for me to give up talking about Jesus. Really is a marvelous picture. Those who are scattered go on their way preaching, and these are ordinary, run-of-the-mill Christians. The gospel doesn't grow through the preaching of a few trained men, but when faithful church members obediently share Christ wherever they go. That's how the gospel grows. When you are faithful to bear witness. Anyway, it says preaching here. It's not the best translation. More like evangelizing, I think, would be a better word. Preaching, I think, conjures up in our minds images of what I'm doing now. And so it's not like they all get scattered out of Jerusalem and then like, okay, all of us are going to go into our study for the whole week. Uh, We're going to spend, you know, 30-ish hours in there preparing to preach a sermon. And then on Sunday, we're going to stand up and we're just going to preach. That's not what's going on. These are not, they're not street corner preachers. They're more like office gossips. They're telling people that they're following Jesus. They're they're gossiping the gospel. Hey, um, I see that you're you're new to town. Why why did you move into, you know, Judea here in Judea, outside of Jerusalem? Didn't you like it in the city? Oh yeah, yeah, I loved it in the city. It was great, but persecution broke out against those of us who are following Jesus. Persecution? What do you what do you mean? Jesus, Jesus who? I haven't, haven't heard of him. Well, Jesus of Nazareth, haven't you heard? He did all kinds of miracles. But the religious establishment crucified him like a criminal. He was dead, and, and, but, he, but he's not dead anymore. He raised, he raised from the dead and, and he, he sent out uh, apostles to tell us about him, to tell us that, that he was the Messiah and if we, we trust in him, we can have forgiveness of sin and life together with God forever. We have the, the promise of our own resurrection. It's really incredible. In fact, I, I've, I've given my whole life to it. I was willing to move out of Jerusalem for it. They're sharing the gospel. It's on their, their lips. Is the gospel on your lips? Ever? 
you got to understand, like, the gospel will grow more quickly through you all sharing it in whatever sphere of influence you find yourself in than it will ever grow from just me sharing the gospel. You have a whole lot of advantages over me when you meet people, okay? And I have some advantages too. It's like, you know, stunning good looks. Um, kidding. Kidding. But no, my advantage, like, people ask me, it's one of the first questions people ask, what do you do? I'm a pastor. It's like immediately they're like, oh, no. Why did I ask? When do you want to talk about Jesus? Like, no! And then, but when I do talk to people about Jesus, you know what's going through their head, right? Oh, so you're a pastor. I see how this works. You get me to come to your church, start giving money. So I see, I see where you're at here. It makes sense. You get paid to do this. But when you're talking to them, they're not having that objection. They're trying to figure you out. They're going, this person is really weird. What are they telling me about here? There's more. Your ministry in terms of evangelism will ring more authentic than mine. Does that make sense? The church will grow much more quickly when all the members of the church are faithful to talk about Jesus, faithful to gossip the gospel. And what we want to cultivate, each of us, in ourselves and in one another, is a culture of evangelism. Sometimes we get scared when we think about evangelism, start freaking out. Nobody likes sermons on evangelism, so we all kind of feel guilty. We're like, I don't really do that. But it's something we're all called to do. And uh, if you didn't catch it, this is kind of a sermon on evangelism. It's going on in the text. Uh, Evangelism is simply telling others about Jesus with the aim to persuade. That's all it is. It's telling people about Jesus. And if you're going, I don't really know how to tell people about Jesus. I mean, come and, and let me or someone else in the church know, and, and we'll, we'll help you with that. I always love uh, one of my favorite definitions of how to share Jesus with somebody is just remember the four words, Jesus in my place. Jesus died for my sins in my place. He rose from the dead in my place. And that means I have a place in God's family. And you can too. You need to think about who in your life you can share the gospel with. There are people who do not know. If you need help with evangelism and you don't want to talk to somebody here, you can just pick up, there's a, I think it's red, red book in the back called Evangelism by J. Max Stiles. And it is a gem. All right, pick it up. You can read it in the afternoon. It's not long. So you don't have that excuse, it's just too long. It's not. You can do it. You can handle it. I want to be a people that are gossiping the gospel. Those who are scattered go on their way preaching the word. I do love this. That the persecution here doesn't cause the church to wilt, but to flourish. Right? This persecution doesn't take God by surprise. You know, nothing does. God doesn't drive an ambulance. He's not going, oh my goodness, they killed Stephen. What do I do now? Totally unexpected. I have to figure something out. No, God knew and God planned for it. In fact, God uses in his providence the persecution of Stephen 
as a catalyst for the proclamation of the gospel. They go outside of Jerusalem. Where? Into the land of Judea and Samaria. That sounds familiar. What did Jesus say in verse 8 of chapter 1? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Uh Somebody is bearing witness in Judea and Samaria. All of a sudden, and it's the result of persecution. God is not taken by surprise. He is using this suffering, even though the church right then and there probably didn't recognize it. Like they're not probably in the midst of getting persecuted and going, you know, God's at work here and here's exactly how. He wanted us to witness in uh, Judea and Samaria, so that's how he made that happen. Likewise, in your life, when you face suffering, you're not going to have clean-cut answers all the time. What you can have is a trust in the truth of the gospel, a trust in God's providence. He's not surprised. The gospel goes forward because where the church goes, Jesus goes. Where you go, the gospel goes with you, and the gospel goes into quite an unexpected place. It goes into Samaria. Look at verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said. As they listened and saw the signs he was performing, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. We're going to get into next week's verses a little bit. I just want to take you into verse 12. When they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. The gospel's being preached in Samaria, and they're believing it. They're believing it. This is really, really unexpected. Jews and Samaritans, they hate each other, okay? Samaritans are are viewed as half-breeds by the Jews at this point in history. Because they intermarried with the Gentiles when they weren't supposed to. And ever since that point, there's just been this rivalry, this rift. They they don't like each other at all. The Samaritans, in fact, they they maintain some Jewish traditions and some of the, the flavors of the Jewish religion. But they also have their own deal. Like they have their own temple. They have their own Pentateuch from which they read. They have their own messianic expectations. Jews and the Samaritans are enemies. I think one of my favorite stories that illustrates this is uh, in AD 6, a group of Samaritans took a bunch of human bones and spread them throughout the Jewish temple during the week of Passover, making it unclean. That's a big deal. And it just, (laughs) I don't know, it's not funny. People died. Uh, But it makes me think of like high school kids when they take fish and like, you know, put them in the vents and stuff and like try to prank each other. This is just next level of that. This group doesn't like each other. Samaritan was used as an insult. If you were a Jewish person, you wanted to insult another Jewish person, like you are nothing but a filthy Samaritan. Like that's, whoa. And then it's on. And yet, Philip goes to preach there. I mean, not even the disciples. The disciples didn't even like Samaritans. Do you remember in Luke 9, uh, they're going towards Jerusalem, Jesus and the twelve. 
And he's like, hey, go into that town in Samaria and ask them if we can stay there for the night. And they go in and they ask and they come back and like, Jesus, they said we can't stay there. Do you want us to call fire down from heaven on them? And she's like, what? Like that escalated really, really quickly. You know, can we stay? No. Oh, we can't stay? We're going to burn the whole thing to the ground. Like that's, that's, that's the perspective that Jews have on Samaritans. It wasn't the perspective Jesus had, though. Jesus in his ministry, I think his whole ministry, anticipates the salvation not only of the Samaritans, but of anyone who would believe. I mean, immediately in, when we think of Samaritans and we think of Jesus, we think of the parable of the good Samaritan. Right? You guys remember the story? There's a lawyer. He's interacting with Jesus. He says, hey, what's, what's the most important commands? Or what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know what's written? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, you've answered correctly. Go and do these things. And then the guy, he wants to get smart. He wants to justify himself. He says, well, who's my neighbor? Who do I have to care about? Who do I need to love? And Jesus tells him this parable. I'm going to read it to you. His words are better than mine. Luke 10, verse 30 is where I'm going to start. It says, Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... Remember, Jews don't like Samaritans. They're like, this is a gasp moment. Samaritan. <gasps> Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, put him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. And Jesus asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. There are a whole lot of things to learn from this parable. I just want to point out a couple. But one is, don't assume you always know who the good people are, based simply on appearances and reputation. Secondly, you are not as righteous as you think you are. That's what the whole point of the parable. The lawyer thinks, I'm pretty righteous. I also want to limit the scope of my righteousness, who I have to love as my neighbor. Like, who exactly do I have to do this neighbor stuff for? And Jesus basically says, anyone you see in need, that's your neighbor. And I'm going to use a Samaritan, somebody that you think is unrighteous, to show you that you're not as righteous as you think. All of us should walk away going, this is a really high calling. I'm not as righteous as I think. And what Jesus is, is doing here ever so slightly, and it comes to fruition throughout the rest of the New Testament, is he's showing us that we can't have righteousness on our own. We can't make ourselves right with God. We can't perfectly keep the law. Remember we said the law is kind of like one of those blue lights on one of the um, 
you know, like murder mystery shows, and it reveals all the different stains when they go into like the hotel room, like, oh, there's, that wall's clean, and they get that light on there, and like, oh, there's blood all over it, right? This is what the law does. It reveals our sin to us. It shows us our need for God, for someone righteous to obey the law perfectly in our place, and that is what Jesus does. We all fail at being good Samaritans. We all fail at loving our neighbor perfectly. But Jesus does not. Jesus is the real good Samaritan who comes to earth and sees us dead in our sin, picks us up, binds up our wounds, pays our debts so that we can go into the care and love of the Father. Instead of ignoring our pain and our plight, Jesus entered into it. Instead of ignoring our suffering, Jesus came and suffered for us. Indeed, he was stripped, beaten, and left for dead hanging on a cross because he was overlooked by religious people who thought they were keeping the law. They cast him aside. He grew up before us like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from, He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness, carried our pain, and we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Jesus is perfect, and real, good Samaritan. He has no problem using the Samaritan as an example for righteousness to show the Jewish person to whom he's speaking that righteousness isn't gained simply by physical descent, but by faith in Christ himself, by living out that faith in Jesus, that Belief gets borne out in behavior. He also uses the example in Luke 17 of the ten lepers. They come to Jesus to be cleansed, and Jesus says, go present yourselves to the priests, and they will declare you clean, and they all go on their way, and on their way to see the priest, they become clean, and only one of them comes back to Jesus, and is like, thank you for healing my leprosy. Only one responds to Jesus with faith. Samaritan. And and then again, Jesus with Samaritans, we think of John chapter 4 and the woman at the well. Remember, Jesus is there, Jews and Samaritans, they don't like each other, they don't talk to each other. He asks her for a drink of water and she's like, don't you know that a Jewish man definitely doesn't talk to a Jewish woman? And Jesus is like, yeah, I know that and I know all kinds of stuff about you and your checkered past. Eventually they have this conversation where he offers to her living water, meaning faith in himself, relationship with him. Eventually, the story ends with him staying in a Samaritan town for two days, 
opening up the scriptures to the people, telling them about himself. And we're told at the end of John 4 there that many in the town believe that he is the savior of the world in Samaria. What we see is that righteousness doesn't come simply by being Jewish. Righteousness comes by faith in Christ alone. We learn that God has people in places we never imagined. And people in Samaria. I wonder, are there places or people you don't share Christ with because you think they're too far gone for faith in Jesus? If we think that way, we fail to understand grace. No one is too far gone. The gospel is not clean yourself up, get a nice haircut, remove those tattoos, uh, live a really good life, and then Jesus will accept you. Not clean yourself up and come to God. The gospel is bring your filthy self to Jesus and be clean. The blood of Jesus Christ is capable of blotting out any stain. The life that is most stained with sin, Jesus' blood can cleanse. Don't ever forget, the person who is forgiven much, loves much. God can save anybody. And in fact, God had people in Samaria, a place where most Jews would have said, he doesn't have any people there. He had people there ready to believe the gospel once they heard it. He has people in this county, people in your life, that are ready to believe the gospel once they hear it. Will they hear it from you? Does Jesus go where you go? Are you gossiping the gospel? Philip shares Christ with them. The people in the town believe And then something really peculiar happens. Look with me at verse 14. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. What? This is really weird if you are a theological type and you're keeping track with the order of kind of salvation. And so a few things that we want to remind ourselves of in Acts is that things are really weird throughout Acts. And the Holy Spirit's working and manifesting himself in a really, really unique way. Sometimes he's presented as being received before baptism and sometimes after. After in this chapter, in chapter 19, before in chapters 9 and 10, I think. But elsewhere, it varies. And so it's a little muddied, like how does this whole thing work? And then the rest of the New Testament makes it crystal clear that when we come to faith, it's because of the invisible work of the Holy Spirit within us, changing our hearts. You want a big word for that? Regeneration, okay? He changes our hearts. He makes us come alive with Christ. And then that invisible work of the Holy Spirit 
is made visible by our response of repentance and faith. Okay, that's the usual pattern. That's what you and I experience. Now, what's different in Acts is that the Holy Spirit is doing these really spectacular and miraculous works outwardly so that everybody can look and see and go, that's power of the Holy Spirit. Like, remember Peter's shadow is healing people, right? And so when the apostles come down, something important is taking place. The question is, I guess kind of what I am arguing here, is they have the Holy Spirit, but they haven't received it in such a way as to do those outward signs. You with me? They have belief, but they don't have these powerful signs of the Spirit that would be expected in Acts. And so we have to ask the question, why not? Okay, why not? I think it's really simple when we look at the context. The gospel is moving from the Jews to the Samaritans, which are kind of like half-Jews, and eventually to Gentiles. With me? And in order to demonstrate the unity of the church, that there's one people of God, that the only way to be right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ, the apostles are going to come down and witness and verify the salvation of the Samaritans. Because you can see how this might go, right? Samaritans have their own temple. Samaritans have their own messianic expectations. Samaritans read from their own Pentateuch. And then the story gets spun that the Samaritans have started their own church, and it's different from the church in Jerusalem. See how that works? And God has foreseen this problem. He's going, no, we're going to make sure that those who are the guardians of truth, these apostles who have been vested with the authority of Christ, are there to witness this whole thing and to verify it. All right? A little bit like, um, like an accreditation board. He goes to school and says, this school is accredited. That's kind of what they're doing here. They're coming to verify that these people have believed the real gospel. That they have the same Holy Spirit that they have. Really what they're doing is they're coming down to Samaria to watch the Samaritans have their Acts 2 moment. We're having Acts 2 show up in Acts 8 here and God wants the whole church there. He wants the apostles there to verify, to say this is one people of God. A lot of reasons for this. And I think probably the primary, one of the primary ones uh, would be to preserve unity within the church and to undercut the pervasive sin of racism and of prejudice. What we see here in Luke is that there are not any second-class Christians. That we are united in Christ by faith. That I have as much of Jesus as anyone else who has faith in Jesus. I love the way that Paul puts it in Galatians 3, towards the end. He says, you were baptized into Christ Jesus. Those of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs. So what he's saying, he's not saying that you, know, you come to Christ and all of a sudden you cease to be white or black or Jewish or Gentile. He's saying all of these others, other identity markers, skin, social status, sex, they 
all become subordinate to your in-Christness. Your being in Christ is now the primary identifier of you. And that union in Christ is stronger than any unity you feel with any of these other groups that you belong to. Right? So if you're a man, you're still a man. You might find camaraderie with men. If you're a person of color, you're still a person of color. You can still enjoy being around other people of color. But your primary identity is in Christ. There's a unity there. No one is better than anyone else because of their race or their background or their descent. Because in Christ, those who have faith in Christ are all Abraham's children. All that have faith in Christ are Abraham's seed in the same family. There's no class of Christians. Okay? It's a shame. Some have used this passage that's really unique and different to go, well, this means that anybody that's a Christian has to have two, two steps go on. They have to believe the gospel, and then if they try really, really hard and people lay hands on them, then uh, they'll speak in tongues and they'll receive the Holy Spirit. But the Bible is, just rules that out in a bunch of different ways. Right, 1 Corinthians, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we've been baptized in one spirit. Romans 8 tells us that those who are children of God have the Spirit of God. If you don't have the Spirit of God, then you are not part of the people of God. We have the Spirit. If you're united to Christ by faith, you have as much of the Holy Spirit as anyone else. Your experience of that, as we've said uh, when we encountered this earlier on in Acts, will vary based on your relationship with God and how you're drawing near to Him. Uh, we gave the example of, uh, you know, if I'm walking with Elliot outside and he's holding my hand and we're just walking along having a good time. He's my son. Legally, he's my son. And then all at once I pick him up and I kiss him and I hug him and I tell oh, I love you. Get a little raspberry, maybe a little red belly. He likes that. And I put him back down on the ground. We ask the question, is he more my son when I've got him picked up in my arms than he is when he's on the ground? And the answer is legally no. Experientially, there's a big difference there. Likewise, in the life of a Christian, our experiences of the Holy Spirit depend on a whole host of reasons that only God knows. There's a whole other sermon on that. I'm getting sidetracked. I'm going to come back to center here. You need to see that there is a unity wrought by the Spirit. That this passage is, is meant to help us see that those in the church are the people of God. That there aren't any first-class Christians. It's not, it's not like, you know, church isn't like getting on an airplane where you, you walk past all those really lucky people in first class that are like laid back, they have a little bit of extra leg room, nice movie going, maybe a glass of wine, nice dinner. Just hanging your head going, man, Walking to, walking to coach, I wish, wish I had some extra leg room, a movie. It's not, it's not how it works. There, there's no distinction in Christ Jesus like that. God's not holding out on us. He's given everything for us to unite us as his people. And what, what we need to see in, in, in Acts 8, is that God is providentially 
working through persecution so that his word will go forth. And it goes forth in the mouths of his people. Where the church goes, the gospel goes. And it even goes among the Samaritans. Even among the Samaritans. And I just, is, is there family that you have? Friends that you have? That you haven't shared Christ with? Don't wait for something dramatic to happen in your life or theirs to share Jesus with them. Gossip the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you that that you love us that this good news of Jesus crucified for our sin and raised for our justification, that it's for everyone, anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Thank you that you have caused us to believe that through the lips of faithful servants, someone, someone shared the gospel with us somewhere along the way, you revealed yourself to us and brought us into relationship with you. Thank you that though we, we stray away, that you continue to routinely bind up our wounds and that your payment for our debt of sin is good. There's no condemnation left for us who have found ourselves under your protection, washed in your blood. Help us to look forward to your return, the resurrection, when everything sad comes untrue. And you live with us forever. Help us to be a church that takes the good news to the nations. Help us to gossip the gospel. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.